0: All right. Well, we're waiting for the men to get done in prayer meeting. Let me go over a couple of announcements. First of all, I think the announcement is wrong. There's a I, I got to check with Alan, but we're having a congregational meeting on either Sunday, February the 21st or Sunday, February the 28th. OK, I thought it was the 28th, but and well, that's what's written up here. So. I just read that. But on either one of those two Sundays, and when Alan gets in here from prayer meeting, we'll we'll have that. Also, uh, uh, there's a date has been confirmed. I think it's uh, July 17th to 24th for Camp Arete, July 17th to 24th. Uh, they're still in need for s- someone to direct the kitchen, three or four kitchen workers, a nurse, activities director, contact Jeff Phipps if you're interested in serving. Also a reminder, the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference is coming up. And then next year, December 20th to 31st, we will be going to Israel. Uh, this will be, I think, the seventh trip to Israel. And so a number of people are already asking, inquiring about that. And so that information, if it's not up on the website right now, it should be very, very soon. We've just finalized the uh, finalized the brochure In the last couple of days, some things will change, but that's not a big deal. Uh, We're just uh, we're just finalizing that. You know, some of these things get fluid uh, just because uh, airfare can't be nailed down until a certain amount of time before you go, and a couple of other things can't be nailed down. So, uh, but we are going. That's definite. It's just a couple of the details haven't been uh, worked out yet so that's that's it for announcements, and a reminder about the campanile brochures are back on the uh, back back table. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto, according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone an opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, it's a great privilege you've given us to know you, to have a relationship with you, to walk with you, to experience your grace, because you have done everything for us, and nothing is dependent upon who we are or what we've done. It's dependent upon Jesus Christ. It's not dependent on our works. It's not dependent upon any human factor. Jesus Christ paid it all. Father, we know that your word is not only inerrant infallible, breathed out by you, but it is sufficient, meaning that it it gives us a sufficient revelation so that we can then uh, study your word and come to understand how the God of creation, the God who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, all that is in them, the God who created us as human beings in your image and likeness, created us in order to serve you and to reflect who you are to the creation, that you designed us a certain way and that you designed uh, our society, our social laws or divine institutions, a specific way, and that those uh, those divine institutions must be preserved in order for a society, a culture to prosper, to be secure, and to go forward and at this time, as we look at our our nation. Uh, And as we are choosing in the process of choosing the next president, we pray that it might be clear who most closely uh, recognizes those divine institutions and will preserve them. Otherwise, we'll just continue to sink into a morass of chaos and self-destruction. Father, as we study in Samuel, we see a great lesson here because this is exactly what happened to Israel time and time again in the Old Testament as they rejected the divine institutions. But even in this passage, we see your grace is always extended, even in our disobedience. And we pray that we might come to understand the important lessons of this section and that uh, God, the Holy Spirit, would make clear to us how we can apply them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, before we get started, I need to uh, do something really quick. I was going to do this when I came in here, but we were running just a little bit late in prayer meeting, and so I was later getting out here uh, than I thought I would. There we go. I needed to grab something from last week. Okay, there we go. Okay, we'll just put that right in here somewhere. There we go. That will uh, help us to understand these particular issues. Okay. All right, here we go. Okay, we're in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10 tonight. And uh, those verses are wrong. It should be. We're moving on from that. We're going to cover uh, the rest of this chapter primarily. uh, Last week, we looked at the section down to about... Uh, verse eight or nine, especially dealing with this whole issue of Saul being uh, identified among the prophets, which is in uh, which is in the fifth fifth verse, and just what that means, because this is truly one of those obscure little passages that people run into and go, what in the world's going on here uh, when it talks about Saul being turned into another man, Saul given a new heart, uh, the spirit of the Lord coming upon him in verse six. And he prophesies with these, uh, prophets, uh, just exactly what does that mean? And verse 5 talks about them, uh, in terms of, of being musicians. So we looked at that last time. So just by way of review, as we're, <clears throat> as we're examining this, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, We learned about Israel's rejection of God. They rejected Samuel. His sons, they weren't, were were not following in Samuel's footsteps. They didn't want them to rule over him. And they wanted to have a king like all of the other nations. And it was that phrase, like all the other nations, that was so, so important because that demonstrates that their motive was wrong. What they wanted wasn't wrong because God had clearly, had made it clear in the Mosaic Law, especially in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter Eighteen, that there would be eventually be a king, so that they wanted a king wasn 't wrong, but their motive for having a king was wrong, and they were in fact rejecting God as their king, and they were looking for human viewpoint solutions to their political problems, and they wanted to be like everybody else and you know the obvious applications for the, of, of that for us are are just too easy to start shooting at uh, that 's a simple target. Uh, We're a nation like all the other nations, and we want to be like everybody else and solve our problems like everybody else. And we don't want to turn to the God of creation to be the ultimate source. But this nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. It was founded primarily by uh, born-again believers who understood the word. And even if they weren't believers, even if they weren't Christians, even if they had trusted in Christ as Savior, they still came out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, and they thought in terms of biblical absolutes. And the reality is, is when we hold the biblical absolutes and we hold to the divine institutions, then the nation will survive and the nation will prosper. But when we don't, the nation will collapse. This was exactly what was... Um, Was part of the Mosaic Covenant that God made with Israel in the Old Testament, and He told them that if you follow the follow the covenant, then you will have life. If you follow the covenant, then you will be I will prosper you. If you follow the covenant, then you will be blessed. But if you are disobedient, God said, I'm going to take you through a series of divine judgments, five different cycles of discipline. And if you just continue to harden your hearts and continue to be rebellious, and you continue to turn away from me in idolatry, and you continue to worship all of these other gods, and you continue to flaunt your disobedience of the divine institutions, then the result is going to be, I'm just going to take you out of the land. I've given you this great privilege to have... Uh, a home, a national homeland in this land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you are disobedient, then I'm just going to take it away from you. And that has happened twice in Israel's history. It happened in two stages the first time. First, the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and then the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And then God, in his grace, allowed a, a remnant, a small number, to return to the land. Uh, it was a, not a large number. It was a small number. Many, in fact, the majority of Jews at the time of Christ still lived in the in the diaspora. So they were allowed to return, and then uh, because of their disobedient, their continued disobedience to God, not because they crucified Jesus, the rejection of the, of Jesus as Messiah was just part of their uh, arrogance. In fact, the arrogance that destroyed Israel reminds me so much of what we're seeing in our own country. It was a fragmentation that occurred so that, as I have read in Josephus and others, that the, that the Jewish community so subdivided into different uh, antagonistic subsets in Jerusalem that they were killing each other. Instead of fighting the Romans, they couldn't even unify in their attack against the, against the Romans. And that's what's happened in arrogance. And I see that in this country that, that you see among especially conservatives, they're so busy shooting each other that they can't fight the enemy, which is liberalism. And liberalism is the enemy liberalism is an assault on everything that our constitution stands for because at its very core liberalism asserts that the government is going to is the ultimate solution to the problem and the constitution is predicated on the belief that human responsibility is the priority and each person is responsible for their own uh... prosperity their their work uh... what happens in their life and the government is not the ultimate solution and those are uh... Those are polarized positions as either one or the other. And the more you get into an irresponsible society where people are no longer taking personal responsibility for their lives, for their futures, for their retirement, for the decisions that they make, the more the government has to fill that vacuum. Uh, the more people are irresponsible, if that is left alone, chaos will ensue. And so what happens historically is that governments increase power. They move into that vacuum, and governments take over in order to prevent the total collapse of the culture because of the irresponsibility and rebelliousness of the people. The period of the judges is a classic example of that. And so what's the solution here? The period of the judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and what's their solution? Let's, Let's put all the power in the hands of a king. And if we put all the power in the hands of the king, then the chaos that's been the result of, of everybody doing what's right in their own eyes during this period of the judges, which is coming to an end, at, which is coming to its end at this point, uh, that all of that chaos is finally going to be resolved and we can have prosperity, not because we've submitted to the authority of God's word, but because we have a king, we have a federal government that can solve all the problems. That's essentially essentially what they are saying. And so that was the problem in, in chapter 8. In chapter 9, uh, God's provision of the first king is made obvious. Saul is uh, <clears throat> identified by God as the one he has selected to be the first king, and Samuel was uh, privately informed about this. God spoke to Samuel and told him, uh who the next king would be and that Saul would be meeting him uh the next day and so uh <clears throat> Saul is is uh, uh we we see Saul brought into the picture Saul is introduced to Samuel and then Samuel uh informs him that he's the one that God has chosen to be the king And that there are going to be uh, several authenticating signs. And I keep emphasizing this principle, as we'll see again in in the rest of chapter 10, is that when God does something in private, it is always authenticated by objective, verifiable signs. And the reason I keep saying that is one of the great dangers in our culture today is mysticism. Mysticism is epistemological antinomianism. I love that phrase. Most people don't know what it means. Epistemological refers to how you know what you know. And so how do you know something is true? Well, we've thrown out rationalism and we've thrown out empiricism as ultimate sources of truth, and so the only thing that's left is some sort of uh, internal intuitive uh, compass that's going to somehow tell us what right is. And so uh, every person has their own internal compass, and they can decide what right and wrong is, and that's just more relativism. That's the problem in the period of the, of the judges. And so in the realm of knowledge and knowing truth and knowing right and wrong, it is thrown into a complete realm of lawlessness. That's the common word for antinomianism. So mysticism is a threat to civilization because uh, mysticism... Breaks down authority, the authority is no longer an objective standard of right and wrong that everybody can appeal to, whether it 's the Constitution or whether it 's the Bible or whatever it might be. but the only absolute is what I think is right and I have my views, you have your views, and everybody has their different views so let's just let you and, and we get caught up in this idea that we need to respect everybody 's views, but you can 't respect somebody 's views that are wrong. And there are rights and there are wrongs. And you're a fool if you respect somebody's views. I respect their right to be wrong, but I can't respect their views because they're wrong and they're self-destructive. And I don't want these idiots out there who are following liberalism to destroy my prosperity and my happiness and my life. Now, I'm sorry if I get upset about that, but it's my life and it's the life of this country. And we just can't let people who are operating on self-destructive ideas destroy what we have in this country. And that's just that's just wrong. But that's what happened in Israel. That will probably happen here. It happened in France. It's happened at times in Britain. It's happened in numerous countries around the world because they all fail the prosperity test. So Saul is going to be privately identified and anointed. We see that at the beginning of chapter 10 by, by Samuel. But it's going to be publicly authenticated as well. In mysticism, everything is just private. How do you know it's true? Because like the Mormons say, I've got this burning in my bosom, or as I like to say, they got liver quiver. You know, there's something inside that tells them that this is right and I'm right, and it doesn't matter what the evidence is, it doesn't matter what anybody else says, I know it's true uh, despite everything that's, that's against it, and that's mysticism. And so uh, this shows that God never works that way. God doesn't give private revelation to people without giving public authentication and validation that can be objectified. Uh because he is the God of reality, he is not an irrational uh irrational God. So what we see in chapter 9 is the rise of Saul. The prelude is chapter 8. We see the rise of Saul. And he will continue to rise until he self-destructs in chapter 15, but then we'll see his decline in the rest of the book, uh, alongside, and that's going to be contrasted with the rise, uh, with the rise of David. And so in chapter 10, chapter 10, we see that, that Samuel anoints Saul and this is going to take place in, in, uh, Ramah, right here, just north of Gibeah. This is about uh, maybe eight to ten miles north, north of Jerusalem, and this is where Samuel's home is. And so, as we've seen in our outline, in chapter 9, the Lord directed Samuel to select Saul to be king over Israel, and in chapter 10, the Lord directed Samuel to anoint Saul and then confirm that appointment through these changes that happened to Saul. So, in verse 1... uh, Samuel says to Saul, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? And that's the Hebrew verb mashach, which the noun form is mashiach, Messiah, and it has to do with someone who's anointed or appointed to a mission. Saul is the priest up to this point, only priests had been anointed. Saul is anointed king, David will be anointed king, later Jehu will be anointed king, and there's two or three others who are mentioned as having been anointed, but not, the, the text doesn't tell us about every king being anointed, but they were anointed under the authority and by the authority of, of a prophet. And that sets a pattern. Even Jesus, who will be the future king of Israel, is anointed first by a prophet and that shows that the ruler is to be under the authority of God who is whose authority is symbolized uh, by the prophet and so Samuel is giving Saul his first lesson that if he's going to be king he has to be under the authority of God that if he violates the authority of God it will lead to uh, to a collapse and in verse 8 he's going to give him specific directions uh, in terms of what he is to do, you shall go down before me to Gilgal. As the prophet, he can direct, directly order, order the king. But it's also interesting here that the language he uses is different. He says, "The Lord has anointed you commander over His inheritance," and that's the word that's down here in the lower left box, nagid. Which is the word for a prince or a leader or a ruler. Doesn't say, initially doesn't say, God has anointed you king over his people. Because God is still the king. Yahweh is still the king over Israel. It's still a theocracy. But when we get over to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 12, 13, uh, Saul will clearly be identified as a king. Now he's going to be presented, verse 13. Of chapter 12, now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired, Samuel says. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. But by using the word nagid here, he's emphasizing that, that a Saul is not a despot. He is not an autonomous king. He is a king under the authority of God. And then as we... uh Continue to look at this uh, uh, situation. Saul tells him some things that are going to happen, and he says the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, we're going to have to look and examine what that means. Verse 7, Let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. And in verse 9, Samuel says, "So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that God gave him another heart. So he's turned into another man. God's going to give him another heart, and we have to ask the question here: just exactly, what does what does this mean? Is this talking about this is the time when Saul is regenerate? It sounds like regeneration language. The problem is, regeneration is the result of what?" Belief in the salvation promise, and there's no statement here of Saul believing any promise of God. I believe that what happens here is related to his mission as the king, and it wouldn't be expressed this way unless Saul were already regenerate. Now, we're going to get into some questions related to that because there are a number of people who don't think that Saul was, was regenerate. Now, one of these signs that, that uh, Samuel mentioned is in verse 3. It says, Then you shall go forward from there, and you'll come to the terebinth tree of Tabor, and there you'll run into three men, and going up to worship God at Beth- Bethel. And he says... Um, uh, they'll meet you, and one one is going to be carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. Now, Danny Burroughs is a farmer up in uh, East Texas, and he emailed me the next day, and he said, how easy is it to carry three goats? See, I'm not going to think about that because I'm not a farmer. But he raises goats, and they're young goats. They have to be baby goats. So he sent me a picture if you can see it, this is his uh, grandson, I think, and he's got two baby goats in his left hand. But the goat to the right is too big, so he couldn't pick up all three of them if it was a mature goat. So it's got to be three baby goats. And uh, so it's interesting. Different backgrounds see different things, uh, different things in scripture. Now, as we were looking at this last time, we came to verse five. Where uh, Saul says, uh, I mean Samuel says, after that you shall come to the hill of God. Now it, the Hebrew word for hill is Gibeah. Now there's Gibeah of Saul, and this is the Gibeah of God, which today is identified as Geba. This is the, the hill of God, uh, Geba, which is a couple of miles north, about three miles north of Gibeah of Saul. And it's told when, when, uh, that there's a Philistine garrison there. When you've come there, you'll meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with stringed instruments, tambourine, flute, a harp before them, and they'll be prophesying. As I pointed out last time, prophesying is something we often think as a prophet declaring revelation from God to his people. Often he's presented as bringing an indictment, as we'll see from Samuel before the end of the chapter, an indictment against Israel on the basis of their violation of a covenant. But that's not what goes on here. So this has led a number of people to think that, well, what's going on here must be what goes on in these other pagan religions, some sort of ecstatic uh, prophecy. And I pointed out last time that, that the problem we've got in a lot of Old Testament studies is they think that the pagans had the ideas first, and the Bible then uh, evolved from that and copied what the pagans were doing, and uh, it's just the reverse. God sets the primary standard. The chicken comes first, then the egg, not the other way around, and God sets the absolute standard and the criteria of what revelation is, and paganism has corrupted and distorted uh, what the Bible presents. So the modus operandi of, of paganism is emotional ecstasism, which is defined as, in, as an individual doing something either through drugs or alcohol or music to try to enter into this kind of altered state of consciousness where he thinks he's communicating, uh, communicating with God and then he identifies whatever comes to his mind in that state as divine revelation. But what I pointed out last time as we look at passages, especially 1 Corinthians 25, 1 through 3, is that in that passage prophecy is linked with music. And so this is a second way in which the word prophecy is used. It is used in relation to singing uh, psalms of praise to God. We have, and I pointed out that Miriam the prophetess uh, sing, wrote, wrote a hymn of victory of, after God delivered the Israelites from Pharaoh. Uh, Deborah, and first in Judges chapter four, verse one, is identified as a prophetess. In Judges chapter five, you have this psalm, the hymn of, De, uh, of Deborah, a victory hymn. So this is what we see here in First Chronicles 25, that there are those who were the sons of Asaph who should prophesy with harp, stringed instruments, and cymbals, and the number of skilled men performing their service. And then they're identified, and again at the end of 25.2, they prophesied according to the order of the king, and in 25.3 they prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. And thanksgiving psalms and declarative praise psalms are two of the categories of psalms that we have. So this makes it clear that this is not some sort of ecstatic utterance. That ecstatics is, ne- is ecstatics is based on mysticism and irrationalism. Ecstatics has nothing to do with God the Holy Spirit, who communicates on the basis of language, and it is rational so that it can be rationally understood. That is understood uh, with uh, with our minds. So as we uh, look at this. one of the things I wanted to point out is in a previous verse i got these slides out of order here in ten six. We have to answer this question: What does it mean that Saul is turned into another man as well as what does it mean that God gave him another heart? and I think basically what this means is that that he 's already regenerate, that God would not there 's no indication anywhere in the Old Testament of God. Uh, sending the Holy Spirit to act like this or to empower a leader. We'll get into the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament either before we finish tonight or next week. But there's no indication this ever happens to an unbeliever in the Old Testament. This happens to a believer, but it doesn't happen in the Old Testament in relation to either salvation, uh, that is justification, or in relation to their spiritual life. But the Holy Spirit was given to specific individuals to perform certain specific tasks in relationship to the leadership of the nation. Okay, we have craftsmen like the Holy Ab and Bezalel with the tabernacle, building the furniture and everything with the tabernacle. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them. Different judges, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. The king, certain kings, Saul and David specifically are said to have. Uh, Uh, been given the Holy Spirit, but it's not an indwelling like what we have in the church age or what will be under the new covenant. It is just a temporary endowment or empowerment to fulfill leadership responsibilities for God's covenant people. Now, that's really important. We'll get into that later on because a lot of people think that, that when David prays in Psalm 51 to God not to take his Holy Spirit from me, that that indicates a loss of salvation Other people are concerned because in the New Testament the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a sign of of our, uh, or is a pledge of our salvation. So it's a guarantee of our salvation. It's part of eternal security. Well, if they didn't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, are they eternally secure? So people have questions about that. So we're going to have to study that. But what I want to do is go through this chapter first, and then we'll look at 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 that particular doctrine uh, when we come out of it. But um, what we see here is that these two verses indicate that there's some profound change that takes place in Saul, that God uh, sent the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul. And we'll look at the language there, and it's the same language that's used. of. The, it's a very powerful term. And it's the same language that is used to describe the Spirit of God coming upon uh, Samson at the end of the period of the judges that gave him the power that he had at the end of the period of the judges. So the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will be turned into another man. And that terminology is used to describe uh, uh something that changes from one thing to another, that your grief will be turned to joy. Your cursing will be turned to blessing. It expresses this transformation from one thing to its polar opposite. So it has to do, though, I believe, with God's provision, his empowerment of Saul to lead Israel and to rule over Israel. I do not think this is his regeneration at this point, but it reflects the fact that he is already regenerate. Now, there are a number of people I've known and had conversations with a number of people who think that that Saul was not regenerate. And usually, what you hear is his—he's he, so rebellious later on in life. He's carnal. He he goes to uh, to the witch of Endor for guidance. This isn't the life. Uh, the character qualities of someone who's truly regenerate. That's the lordship position, okay? But you've got a couple of problems with that. One of the problems is that, that it doesn't take into account the passage we've studied many times in Romans 6, 3 through 6, that talks about the, the foundation of the Christian, the church-age spiritual life, as being the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And when we're identified with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, the power, the tyranny of the sin nature is broken. That's Paul's whole argument as we've studied in Romans chapter 6 before. This never happened before the day of Pentecost. No one was ever baptized by the Holy Spirit before the day of Pentecost. Therefore, no Old Testament saint, no matter how wonderful they were, No matter how mature they were, no matter how much they were used by God, no Old Testament saint had experienced the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and therefore no Old Testament saint had had the power of their sin nature broken. Now you think about that. You think about they they were struggling in many ways, without the kind of aid, assistance, or changes that you and I have had as a result of our faith in Christ and the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, uh, they're they're still under the tyranny of the sin nature. So uh, when you look at Someone like Saul, an argument like well regeneration would change that no regeneration doesn 't change that it 's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that might have that kind of a difference so that that argument doesn 't wash wash at all, but the real key to understanding i think saul 's the saul 's salvation that Saul was destined for eternity in heaven is really found in first samuel chapter twenty eight and um, In 1 Samuel chapter 28, we read that Saul goes to the witch of Endor and he's trying to find some divine guidance and he turns to the occult, which is forbidden, prohibited by the Mosaic law, and he turns to the occult to find answers. And you can always tell when a believer has really hit rock bottom is they no longer turn to God for answers. They turn to anything and everything else for a solution to their problems. And when it's really bad, they start turning to the occult. They start turning to Satan and demons in order to find answers uh, to their problems. So he goes to the witch of Endor. And, the, and he's he's disguised himself so she won't recognize that he's the king because earlier he had banned all uh, necromancers, all witches uh, from uh, off, from from Israel. And so he comes to her and he wants her to call up Samuel. And about that time, she recognizes that this has got to be Saul, and she accuses him. And of course, he has to admit who he is. And so she starts to call up Samuel. Now, normally these, these, um, um, necromancers, these mediums that would try to contact the dead were either in, in league with some sort of demonic involvement where, where a demon would cause a counterfeit to occur, or they were a ventriloquist and the, because the Greek word that is used in the Septuagint to translate this is the the word in which ha- has to do with being a ventriloquist. And what they would do is they would cast their voice at the ground, and it would sound as if the person was speaking from the grave, speaking up from the ground, and this would uh, then convince the person who had gone to the medium that the person they wanted to contact was actually speaking to them, but what happened here is Samuel actually appeared. That's what Blue Saul's cover is when the, when uh, uh, Samuel appeared. Then all of a sudden she realized that something was different. This wasn't the normal operating procedure, and now she was she was going to be in trouble. But um, that isn't what Saul wasn't there to to catch her at it. He was there because he was desperate to find out what to do about the Philistines. And so Samuel is a little miffed. He has been called up from Sheol, specifically Paradise, Abraham's bosom. In Shaol, we'll look at the makeup there in just a minute. And he says to, to Saul, in First Samuel twenty-eight fifteen, "Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? What is wrong with you? I was ha- I was there in perfect environment, and you've called me back to." This pigsty of an earth, the devil's world, why are you doing this? And Saul says, Oh, I'm deeply distressed. I am just about pulling my hair out. I'm scared to death. Everything's falling apart. And the Philistines are making war against me. They're going to defeat me. God's left me. Um, I'm going to go eat dirt everybody's left me alone and deserted me, and there's no hope, and I, you were the only hope. So the prophets don't talk to me. God doesn't give me any guidance, so I've called you to reveal what I should do. So Samuel says, so why do you ask me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? You have become the enemy of God because of your rebelliousness, and God is taking you through this discipline point. And Samuel goes on to say, The Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has ripped the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Then he says, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, uh, continues explaining it, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you. And then the important verse is verse 19. Then Samuel says, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. You're going to lose and you're going to, the whole country is going to go under the, the hand and the power of the Philistines. And tomorrow, this is late at night, we hours of the morning probably says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. We think that means. Now see, some people say, well, all he's talking about is you're going to be dead like I am. But I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying you're going to be with me. That's a much more intimate term. Now some people say, "Well, he just means you're going to be with me in Sheol." But see, in the in the New Testament there's this this parable, not a parable, excuse me, not a parable I misspoke. There's this story that Jesus tells. It's not a parable because one of the people involved is specifically named. In parables you don't name the people because you're not talking about uh, actual individuals. And the, there, there's two people. There's the rich man, and there's this beggar that live that, that, that this homeless guy, who lives outside the beggar's front gate. And the homeless guy is named Lazarus. And the rich guy just ignores him and never gives him anything, never offers to help. And the rich man, Lazarus dies and the rich man dies. And the rich man, and they both go to Sheol. And I'm going to, skip this slide and go to this slide. Sheol is made up of two compartments. Uh, we have Abraham's bosom, which is also called paradise. And this is where Lazarus is. Then there's this impassable barrier. And on the opposite side, there's a place called Torments, which is where the rich man is. And in terms of this story, Jesus apparently has, there's an allowance there where the rich man could see Lazarus now this isn 't probably is not Lazarus of of John chapter eleven. Uh, Lazarus was a common name, and you also have a place in Sheol called Tartarus, which is where uh, some of the demons are bound. but the rich man's in torments, Lazarus and Old Testament believers are in abraham 's bosom, and what happens is that that the rich man sees Lazarus and he begs Abraham to let Lazarus stick his finger in the water this great gulf that's fixed between the two the two locations and to put water on his tongue because he is going through these fiery uh, fiery torments and then Lazarus says I mean Abraham says well that that really isn't going to help at all and they go through this dialogue and then towards the end what happens is that the, the rich man tries to convince Lazarus to let, to, let the, um, to let Lazarus be resurrected so that he can tell his brothers. And here's the int- interesting verse. Now, just to finish this out, Abraham's bosom doesn't exist anymore. This is paradise. And this, according to 2 Corinthians twelve four and Revelation 2, 7, has been moved to, to heaven after the cross. And so all that's left is torments, and this is sort of the holding cell for all unbelievers until they're brought out of Sheol at the Great White Throne Judgment, uh, which is when they will be evaluated, their works won't be good enough, and then they'll be sent, uh, to the, to the Lake of Fire. So, let me go back a couple of slides. So what he, what the rich man says, he says, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. Let him go back and testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. The point I'm making here is, if they die, they'll come here and be with me in torments. So, so when Samuel says to Saul, you'll be with me, he's not talking generically, you'll be in torments and I'll be in Abraham's bosom. Uh, the language of scripture is more precise than that. What Samuel is saying is, no, you're going to be with me. Where am I going to be? I'm going to be in Abraham's bosom. Where are you going to be? You're going to be in Abraham's bosom also. You're also, uh, you're, you're you're a believer, so you're not going to be uh, be in torment. So this is the argument for why Saul is a believer. Now, when we look at these passages, this is not talking about Saul being uh, being regenerate. It's talking about God giving him the ability to lead Israel through this endowment of God the Holy Spirit. So then we move on and we look at verse, verse 8. And at this point, Samuel begins to give guidance and instruction to Saul as to what he should do next. Now, we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, but this in- introduces one of the chronological conundrums of Samuel. We have chapter verse eight Samuel telling Saul, "You shall go down before me to Gilgal Now here's a map here's here's our location here in Ramah, and Gilgal is located down near the Jordan. This is a location where uh, Israel had crossed over the Jordan when they entered into the land, and this is where they reaffirmed the covenant with God. They b- built a monument there to remind them of how God brought them into the land. And so they're going to go, uh tells them to go down to Gilgal and to wait for him. But this isn't mentioned again until we get to chapter 11, uh, verse 14. And in chapter 11, uh, down in... Uh, Verse 14, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. But what happens in between is that Saul uh, gets involved in a battle with uh, Nahash the Ammonite to protect Israel, functioning as a king or as an executive power should, that the role of government is to protect a nation and their national borders from the advances of the enemy. When you don't preserve the borders of a nation, then you are, in, in effect, an enemy of that nation, and you're allowing the nation to be overrun by its, by its enemies, and that comes under the divine institution of nations or, or, or nationalism. So uh, the, the, as the story goes on, uh, he, uh, Saul goes down, this is when he runs into the prophets The Spirit of God came on him. He prophesied, that is, he's singing psalms with these prophets. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him uh, mightily, came upon him. And the word that's used there in 10.10 is the word that's used in Judges uh, 14.6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that's Samuel, I mentioned this earlier, Uh, I mean Samson, came upon Samson mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, that's tearing the killing the lion, uh, Judges fourteen nineteen, the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed thirty of them. That's the same verbiage that's used in uh, in relation to the spirit of the Lord coming upon Saul. Judges fifteen fourteen, also describing uh, the spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson uh, when he uh, breaks the ropes that he's been 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 tied with. So, First Samuel eleven. Uh, 6 also described this earlier in the chapter. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily. Same word, uh, 1 Samuel sixteen thirteen. It will describe the coming of the Spirit of the Lord on David. When Samuel anointed David in the midst of his brothers, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David uh, from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went on to Ramah. And so we see this in a number of these passages. So this shows that this is a very real empowerment of god the holy spirit on on saul so he's you can't get away and say he's not a believer Uh, this kind of action only occurs on those who are believers so as we continue in in the story we read down in verse 10 as they're progressing uh, with the prophets, and he's singing with them. When they came to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He prophesied among them, and it happened then when all who knew him formerly, so all of his buddies are hearing that Saul is now singing uh, with the prophets, uh, that, that they started asking each other, what has happened to the son of Kish? Now the reason that it's written that way is because they're emphasizing Saul's father, who, who, his his father and his lineage, and so the question is. Comes up later in in the prophets: Are you a prophet or a son of a prophet? And so he doesn't have the lineage to be a prophet. And so the idea is: Well, his father's Kish. Kish isn't a prophet so what in the world is going on here with with Saul and the basic i think the basic question that's going on here is that it reflects this assumption pagan assumption that the gifts were hereditary and that that uh, this should come from uh from the father but the question that comes up in verse 12 then a man from there answered and said but who is their father that is who is the father of these prophets? Well, their fathers weren't prophets either. And the point that he is making is that this is, the Spirit of God is going to come on whom he will, and it's not a hereditary gift. Spiritual gifts are not hereditary. I found it very interesting for the first time. I mean, there have been a few cases in history where a fathers had a, a great ministry like Jonathan Edwards, in many cases, when their sons have taken over, they've been um, they've been somewhat uh, heretical. Jonathan Edwards the younger was certainly uh, heretical and brought in what became known as as uh, a New England theology. It was very instrumental in that. And there have been a few cases, but we have a generation. Um, I know of a pastor in Atlanta who's very orthodox. His son went through Dallas Seminary, and last Tuesday night we watched that. Uh, that, that film uh, from the pre-trib, Paul Wilkinson's uh, talk on on this new Christian Palestinianism, and this pastor in Atlanta's son, who pastors a mega church in Atlanta also, uh, he is now uh, an anti-Christian Zionist, and he's fallen in with this pro-Christian Palestinian crowd. And, and it's amazing. I, I look on this generation. I've never seen so many... Sons of pastors who have followed in their father's footsteps. We have one here in a very large, probably the largest church in America, right here in Houston. Never guy never thought he should be a pastor until his father died, and now now he is. Just you know, they down there at the summit, um, Joel Osteen, and uh, and we've seen this again and again and again. But what, what this is emphasy, emphasizing is the giftedness from God is not a hereditary thing. And may be in a few cases, but it's not as normal as we're seeing in our culture today, uh, I don't think. I think that a lot of people are just going into their family business. Uh, then a man came from there and answered, who's their father? In other words, their father's not a prophet. Saul's pro- pro- heredity has nothing to do with what is going on. And so it became proverbial. That Saul was numbered among the prophets. That is, they were accepting what happened as a sign that God was authenticating uh, the the anointing of Saul, and they're accepting that. So then Saul went home. Goes back down five or six miles to Gibeah of Saul. And Saul's uncle says, Tell me please what Samuel said to you. Now you would think that you came home. You've had a lot of exciting things happen. You've met a prophet. The prophet has told you you're going to be the new king of Israel. He's given you certain signs and all th- kinds of things happened. And then the uh, uh, Holy Spirit came on you and you sang with the prophets. It's been an eventful day. But Saul doesn't tell him any of these things. Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us that the donkeys had been found. But about the, ki- the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. And I think this is a bit of for, subtle foreshadowing that indicates something about Saul's character. And we're going to see something else about this before we get to the end. The end of the chapter. That that Saul, I think Saul is just overwhelmed at this point. I don't think this is a huge negative, but I think he just doesn't know what to do with this. And as we see, he's not really spiritually inclined. So this whole thing about about now that he's going to be under the authority of God and God's appointed him to be king and he's supposed to be be loyal to the covenant. That is just outside of his whole frame of reference. And it, it foreshadows that eventually uh, this is going to be a problem for Saul. Then the next event that happens is not only has there been this authentication of Saul's anointing by what occurred uh, as, he, as he sang with the prophets, but... Samuel is going to have an even more public authentication of Saul, and he called the people together at a place called Mizpah. And there Samuel is going to address the nation as a prophet, what he is going to indict them. He's going to say, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. And what we see here is that Samuel is is using language that is reminiscent of other earlier prophets in condemning Israel for not remembering what God had done for them and how God had delivered them from the slavery in Egypt and how he had protected them from uh, the the uh, assaults of other nations. We'll get into that in a minute. But all of this is important because of the site that they go to. They go to Mizpah. Here's the location of, of uh, Mizpah uh, right here just to the northwest of Ramah, Samuel's hometown. But Mizpah had quite a history. First of all, it was founded in Genesis chapter 31, when Laban and Jacob reached an agreement after Jacob returned to the land. And there was a covenant that was, a peace that was made between them and set up there according to Genesis chapter 31, verse 41. Later on, we learn that Mizpah was allotted to the tribe of Benjamin in Joshua 20, I mean, Joshua 18, verses 2 and 26. So this is part of this area here that we're looking at, north of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on the borderline. Between uh, uh, Judah, what did I do? Hit the wrong thing. Okay, between Judah and uh, Benjamin. So he's gonna, they're going to gather there. This was the site of a terrible war that occurred. Uh, with Benjamin, where the rest of the tribes were at a war with Benjamin and almost annihilated all of the Benjamites. And it was the site where Israel took an oath not to let their daughters marry the Benjamites. So it is a reminder of the spiritual failure of Benjamin. And, of course, Saul is from what tribe? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. So, again, this is a negative tone that we see here in, in reference to Mizpah. But there's one positive thing about Mizpah that's recent, and that is what we saw that in 1 Samuel 7, 5, Samuel summoned the people to Mizpah to turn to the Lord and to turn away from the idols that they had worshiped. And the people did come together, they turned back to the Lord, they confessed their sin before the Lord before they were going to go into the battle with the Philistines. But what happened? The Philistines came along, and heard that they were meeting there, so they were going to attack them, and God miraculously uh, delivered them. He thundered from heaven, which confused the Philistines, and then they set up a memorial stone. Samuel set up a memorial stone just outside of Mizpah, where he and he called this memorial stone the Stone of Ebenezer. And the phrase Ebenezer means the Rock of Help. Ezzer is an assistant, a helper. It refers to God. Evan is a, the word for rock, and so that word Ebenezer has come into uh, modern Christian language through a hymn that we often sing: "Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing." And this is the second stanza. And often this is just obscure to most Christians. They don't they sing this, but they don't really know what it means. And it is a second song, The second stanza written by Robert Robinson, who was really concerned about the fact that he tended to drift away from the Lord. And uh, the story is told that when later in life, he had been away from the Lord for a long time. He was on a carriage ride. A young girl got on the carriage with him and was getting to know him and realized who he was and told him how much he lo- she loved his hymn. And he just broke down weeping because in the hymn, he recognizes that he is prone to wander from the Lord I love. And he had been wandering for many years, and this he was really under conviction that he needed to turn back to the Lord. And so this is part of the hymn. He writes, sorrowing, I shall be in spirit till released from flesh and sin. It's a struggle in this life. Yet from what I do inherit, here thy praises I'll begin. Here, at this point in my life, I'm going to raise this rock of memory, Ebenezer, that God has helped me to get this far in my life, and here here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. What he's saying is is that, that like this rock of God's help in Samuel, he's establishing this benchmark in his life that God helped him get this far, and he hopes God will get him the rest of the way. Now, what happened with Israel in this indictment from Samuel is Samuel is saying, you've forgotten what God has done for you in the past, and you're not depending upon him to get you the rest of the way. Now, there's a New Testament promise that relates to this. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is going to continue to work in us. The trouble is some people fade out, and then God's work in us is going to be, take the form of discipline rather than helping us to grow. So Samuel brings all the tribes together and uh, he's going to go through this lot selection, somewhat like has occurred in other other episodes in the uh, in the Old Testament. For example, in uh, Joshua chapter uh, uh, chapter eight, uh, the sin of Achan. I, um, excuse me, that's in Joshua chapter four, uh, the sin of Achan after the defeat of Jericho, uh, or Joshua chapter five. That they're going to identify who the culprit is who has sinned. And so they go through this process of using the lot. Proverbs says that the decision of the, of the lot is, is the Lord's. And so they, um, uh, they go through this, this, uh, lot selection process and they choose the tribes and of the tribes they choose Benjamin and then they go through the various, uh, uh, clans. And the clan of Matri is chosen, and then they go through the various uh, families, and the family of Kish is chosen, and Saul is the one chosen. But you can't find Saul. Saul's out hiding with the baggage train. He, he's, he's uncomfortable still with this, this new role is coming. So they inquire of the Lord, has this man come here yet? And the Lord says, yes, he's hiding with the baggage train. So that confirms the fact that the Lord has selected Saul even though Saul isn't quite enthusiastic about accepting the responsibility. So they ran and they brought him from there and when he uh stood among the people he was taller than any of the people from his his shoulders upward. Now here's an interesting thing uh, about this particular Uh, statement, is that uh, the author here emphasizes Saul's height, and you've heard me make a couple of comments. There's a lot of stuff written by political science majors, PhDs, students on why that Americans tend to uh, select people who are taller to be their politicians for various different reasons, but, but, and I pointed out that we have in the middle of an election season that the people we all like and would like the most, and many of us would like the most because he's most constitutional, is one of the shortest candidates. I don't know what that's going to mean, because he's probably going to run against an even shorter candidate, but she's a woman, so that changes the whole thing. Okay, but I'm just saying, this is a trend in America, and how can you expect a rebellious, pagan, postmodern culture to pick people on the basis of character and quality? You can't. And I think we may be setting ourselves up for disappointment if we do. But that's an American value. We want a tall guy. Sam Houston was a tall guy. George Washington was a tall guy. Andrew Jackson was a tall guy. We like tall men because they look like they can protect us and they can lead. That wasn't necessarily the the value system in Israel. In the Bible... The only people who are mentioned as tall are pagans, unbelievers, enemies of Israel. You have various groups that are mentioned as being tall. The pre-Israelite residents of Canaan mentioned in Numbers 13, the people are tall. They're Anakim in the land, and so we can't defeat them. Incidentally, Goliath was a descendant of the Anakim. You also had Og of Bashan. You had um, the Cushites, the Sabaeans, the Amorites. These are all mentioned as being tall people, but they're all enemies of Israel. David is the godly king, and he's short. So this isn't a value. So this is a little hint, I think, a foreshadowing. Saul's a tall guy. Tall guys are not good guys in the Bible. So there's there's a negative there. The enemies of Israel are the tall guys. So I think this is a a way in which uh, this is just weaving this little foreshadowing into the the story that, that Saul eventually will become an enemy of Israel. So then we come to verse 24, and we'll wrap up the chapter. And Samuel says, you find the one that the Lord has chosen, again emphasizing Saul is God's choice. God has chosen a guy who's going to be a failure because he has to teach Israel a lesson. Sometimes we have to have bad leaders in order for us to learn humility and learn lessons. Um, so the people shouted, they found him, they shout out, long live the king. And then Samuel began to explain to them the behavior of royalty, how, how the kingship is going to operate and he wrote it in a book. So there's a revelation that's given. This is how the king is to function under the authority of God. And then he sent everybody away. And we're told Saul went home to Gibeah and valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. Now, I will come back later on and deal with this because there, this is a textual mess with this last verse. And I don't have time to get into this. But that's what we'll come back to in a couple of weeks as we set up the transition into the next chapter. But what I want to do next time is take the time to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament to help us understand the distinctions between the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the role of the Holy Spirit in the church age. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, events in Israel's history as they have uh, patterns and they have principles that apply to uh, us today. We see the same issues that when a people uh, turn away from you, that you will bring judgment on them, whether they are the covenant people of Israel or even are Gentiles. Other times in the Old Testament, we see your judgment on Gentile nations for their rebellion against you. We have the promise in Jeremiah 18 that any nation that that turns away from their wicked ways and turns to you, that you will restore them. And that is a promise that applies to any nation, not just to Israel. And, Father, we pray that our nation would get to the point where they would recognize that the path that we're on is a path of self-destruction, and the only way to, uh, to recover is to turn back to you. But, Father, if that does not happen, And we live in a nation that is under divine judgment. We pray that we as believers would stand forth as shining lights to a wicked and perverse generation. And that we would be a testimony and that we would uh, proclaim the truth of your word to those around us, that they too might come to know the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.